Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 3, Episode 7, and today we are going to be talking about The Big Sick from 2017. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, and I am one of your co-hosts. I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Good. This is, uh, I think this is our first early morning recording, so this is sort of wake up with wake up with stream it here different kind of energy for us this morning yeah i think this is the first time that i'm recording drinking coffee so Mm. that's something excellent yeah so let's get into it here what's uh what's your experience with this movie had you seen it before i had not seen this movie before not only had i not seen this movie before but i basically knew nothing about this movie coming in i didn't know I mean, I really didn't know what it was about. Oh, wow. Yeah, I kind of, like, in my mind, I remember when it came out, and I remember seeing, like, a trailer that I barely paid attention to when it came out. And I remember liking, you know, the the jokes that were told I thought were interesting. But in my mind, I had kind of pegged it as being about the U.S. healthcare system or something. Mm, yeah. So this mo- this movie does have a rather unfortunate there there was a rather unfortunate confluence in my mind where I didn't like this and the big short which is a movie I also had not seen were sort of the same movie in my head because I didn't really I hadn't really put together which one was which That's probably what happened to me as well actually now that I think about it cuz they were you know close in time period and I didn't see either of them until later, and I don't know, just complicated. So I really wasn't sure what the film was about, and I by the time we sat down to watch this, I was like, no, that's that's not what this is about. Like just looking at the poster and whatnot, and so I went in basically blind and not knowing what was going to happen. I feel like it's a really good movie for that, actually. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah, so I was sort of in a similar boat to you where I didn't necessarily have a very good sense of what this movie was about. I knew it was a romantic comedy, and I knew <laughs> I knew that Kumail was in it. This is the second movie in our series of movies that helped land actors their marvel projects nice yeah very good (laughs) so that's kind of fun but yeah what was a little odd though was watching the movie i don't know if i had seen like a lot of trailers for this movie that i had like sort of not necessarily filed what they were from or maybe watched some talk shows that Kumail was on but there were a lot of scenes in this movie where I was like I have seen this scene before and I know I have not seen the movie before but there was a lot of scenes where it was like I know like I know this dialogue and so that actually was a a rather strange experience for me but I 
didn't know the movie. Well, I sort of had that experience as well a little bit, but it was the stand-up bits that Kamel did because I've listened to a little bit of his stand-up uh, separately from before having watched this movie. So some of the jokes that he was telling, I was like, I've heard that joke. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that one. And that so that was a little bit strange. Uh, but I had pieced oh, together no. that, that what I was remembering was jokes that I had seen him perform in other places. Uh, no, these were these were scenes. This was not from the stand-up. Right. It was like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it when we talk about the scenes. Sure, so. makes sense. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about 2017. <laughs> and this is, you know, it, it's a little bit of a tough spot because the way I listen to movie podcasts is I don't necessarily really listen to movie podcasts in order i sort of listen to the movies that i've seen or sometimes i'll watch a movie and then i'll go searching for a podcast that covers that movie because i want to hear what other people have to say or i have like my list of movie podcasts and then i'll search through those to see if anyone's covered that movie so i i'm not a hundred we've talked a lot about the time of Donald Trump and the time surrounding Donald Trump and the how that affected like the art that was made and m- more importantly especially for this movie how we viewed the art that was made at the time so <laughs> we are trying to be conscious of the fact that we've talked about it before but also it's really important i mean it's impossible to talk about 2017 without talking about who was president at the time yeah, that guy sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, it, yes. It, it, it cast a, a cloud over, over those entire four years. And enough so that it's sort of like, I know you had this feeling where you were, when you were looking through 2017, just looking back at everything that happened during that time, starting really in 2016 with the lead up to the election and as we had talked about for Inside Out a little bit in 2015, it's just the amount of horrible things that happened during that time is so staggering that it's easy to forget all of it. But then it's also this weird thing where there are like moments of light in there where we remember some of the fun things that just feel like, at least for me, feel decoupled from, the memory of them feels decoupled from the horribleness. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's it's surreal to see them all next to each other. I got to say, when I was looking up through the year for 2017, and I pulled it up and I was scrolling through, I had a minor pan- panic attack. Not even joking. Just like, all it is, that page is so long and it's just all, it's all Donald Trump stuff. Like, it's, it is, it is yeah. hard to, exp- like, you know, just go through and open up 2017 events and scroll through and like, it's it's a traumatizing experience so i don't know it's a, there's um and there were so many events that we couldn't possibly like connect them out like really terrible events that happened that would be impossible to to even mention them all so maybe we'll do another 2017 movie and we can bring in some of the other awful things i mean i think we might it kind of was a really good and interesting year for movies the there was, I, I pulled the 
top 10 highest grossing films of that year. So let me run down those really quick, just so people can place what they remember. But this was Star Wars The Last Jedi was number one. The live action Beauty and the Beast was number two. The Fate of the Furious, which I think is the eighth one in the series, because I think... Fate and eight, and yes. Eight. yes. Yeah. I haven't seen anything past two, so I don't actually know for sure. Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle was... Oh, no, I skipped Despicable Me 3 was number four. Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle was number five. Spider-Man Homecoming was number six. A movie that I actually didn't know existed until I pulled this list. Number seven was Wolf Warrior 2. Which I've seen. Did you know that? You have seen that? I've seen Wolf Warrior 1 and Wolf Warrior 2. So, but Mm. Wolf... Quick tangent, the Wolf Warrior films were released in China, and they are like they were the biggest uh, films in China in the time period, and it's not really a movie that crossed over into the U.S., so what you're looking at on the international box office there is mostly like just oh. its China receipts. Okay, that makes sense. I didn't mean to pull international, but I guess I did. And then we finish up with three superhero movies, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok, and Wonder Woman. For me, as I was looking through trying to piece this together, 2017 and 2018, for for my money, are the best two years of films in the past 20 years. Mm. And there's just a lot of really good films from 2017. Uh, Some of my favorites. Yeah, and then I had pulled just some that weren't in the highest grossing films that either... I think all of these had some amount of Oscar consideration, but films that I loved or were highly considered for that year. We had Get Out, Dunkirk, Lady Bird, Shape of the Water, Shape The Shape of Water, The Pause. Oh, did you put that one in? Nope. Hmm. Maybe that's a typo. So The Shape of Water, Coco, It, and Logan. Yeah, it's my favorite on there is Coco, which I probably would have chosen for best picture of the year that year because i just love coco it was amazing and wonderful but yeah i don't know it was a good year for films yeah my favorite is probably get out which i think is it's definitely a top 30 movie for me i think it's in my top 20 though i I just really really love that one yeah it's i've got that one in my top 60 so also also a big fan of that one okay so that's sort of the sort of the happy stuff (laughs) the car outside is also happy about it uh let's talk about some of the some of the bad stuff that happened this year. So th- this movie came out on at Sundance on January 20th, which also happens to be the exact same day that our 45th president, Donald Trump, was sworn in. And then uh, something that I think is relevant to this movie, what, what happened a week after that, Maddie? Uh, the week after that, January 27th, um... There's a lot of details to this one that we don't need to get into in too much detail, but essentially Donald Trump banned uh, people from predominantly Muslim countries from entering the United States. Yeah, which got the nickname the Muslim ban. Yeah. And this one is incredibly vivid in my memory because I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when the Muslim ban went into place, there was complete havoc at the airports because there were a lot of people that mm-hmm. were like on planes at the time when all of a sudden they were being arrested and detained at airports and being kept without like being able to contact their lawyers, all kinds of different things. And so on that day, on January 27th, on that day, I drove down to my local airport and, you know, 
camped out. Uh, that's probably not the best word because I didn't have a tent, but I was there for like seven hours, something like that, at the airport protesting. And we were there with a group of us, probably around 300 people, something like that, that were uh, refusing to leave the airport until until the uh, Muslim passengers that were there at my local airport in Las Vegas uh, were released from their being detained. And it was a long time that we were there, and since the airport is a privately owned business, we didn't have, like, a permit or permission to be there. It was uh, a protest that technically was not a legal protest, uh, though mm-hmm. um, no no legal authorities were really challenging us at the time period, and the airport was kind of just letting it happen because... I think just because of the way it would have looked to try to bring police in to eject people from the airport in that case uh, would have been tremendously harmful to their reputation. So I remember that day really vividly and what happened. And it connects very strongly with this film because of the connection that the main character is Muslim. And so it's a pretty important one to include on the list. Yeah, and the thing I remember about that, I I was seeing a show or I was doing a show I wasn't because I remember chatting with you and I wasn't able to go protest but the what people may have forgotten or maybe they haven't the so the 26 days leading up to this or maybe the 19 days of the year leading up to Donald Trump being sworn in we were sort of treated to all of these think pieces about how people who were concerned about the Donald Trump presidency were overreacting and that it wasn't going to be as bad as we thought it was going to be and that like the powers of our institutions would be a lot stronger than that. <laughs> there were a couple really great articles of like, and I'm saying that sarcastically, um, saying basically as soon as he's signed in sworn in as president like the gravity of the office will overtake him and he'll become logical and more even tempered and so we had to sort of deal with that for all the time leading up to that but then also and i don't know if we talked about this matt but i certainly didn't ever have a there wasn't ever any doubt in my mind that the Donald Trump presidency was going to be disastrous for this country and disastrous for a lot of people who don't look like me or don't have the privileges that I have. But I think what what I wasn't sure about was how overt those acts were going to be, and I wasn't sure how like how visible it would be to the rest of the world. I didn't know if it, or the rest of the country, I didn't know if it would be something that sort of happens in back rooms through legislation that then doesn't really get paid attention to. And we don't necessarily notice the repercussions of for, you know, years to come. I And I definitely was not expecting it to move as quickly as it did. I wasn't expecting that literally seven days after he was sworn in (laughs) we were going to people were going to be protesting at the airport like i just remember 
I think I said to you, or maybe I said to another friend of mine, Alex Ullman, like, I just didn't think it was going to move this fast. I didn't realize we were going to be here so quickly. Yeah, I have a hard time remembering exactly how I felt in the moment as things were going on. But I do remember, um, I remember someone posting on social media, like, on January 19th. They're like, you know, I talked to my kids and I was like, the president's going to change, but mostly your life will be the same and you don't have to worry about things. Then I responded and I was like, that's a bit of a privileged day to take. And then I got deleted and they yelled at me for saying that. And a week mm. later, uh, Muslims were being banned from entering the country. So I feel vindicated in that, in that response. That's Well, a- and thankfully, we're finally recording this podcast so we can tell that hooligan what's what. <laughs> Yeah, so, I don't know. It was kind of funny. Funny, not in a funny ha-ha way. Funny in an oh, that's terrible way. So Yeah, you had pulled some other things from this year. Do you want to run some of those down? Yeah, they're all terrible. But So, May 26th, which I think ties in really closely with this, especially because it would precede the U.S. release by about a month. There was a an anti-Muslim stabbing incident where Ricky John Best and Talison Mirden and Nam Kaimish were stabbed to death on a Portland train. But after they were intervening uh, with a white supremacist who was yelling racist and anti-Muslim slurs at two black teenagers. Uh, I don't know how well you remember that event, but uh, when I was scrolling through and saw this, uh, it I was having flashbacks to when that happened. No, I don't remember that event specifically but i think that more speaks to the volume of events like this that overtook the feed yeah for sure and i thought it was important to include here just because there were so many anti-muslim events that happened in these first two years of the donald trump presidency and it's not that they subsided too much as the presidency went on but you started seeing a lot of hate crimes spreading out to other groups as the presidency continued on and but there was a lot of a lot of anti-muslim hate in 2017 going on yeah and we should be clear there had been a lot of anti-muslim hate before this yes. <laughs> it's not like donald trump created it but it did create an environment where people felt more emboldened emboldened yes that's a good word so that would have happened about a month before the wide u.s release of this film so i in the interviews in the press leading up to this one of the things that the the people involved with the film especially kumail nanjiani's wife emily gordon talked about a lot was that the film was particularly important to her because she wanted people to see regular ordinary muslim folks and muslim families just being regular ordinary people in Mm -hmm. order to humanize muslim people around the events that were that were surrounding this so not only was it that people would have been thinking of it at the time period but that was directly on the minds of the people involved with the film as they created the film and released it yeah and the so i did go back and check and i listened to an interview with kumail so they had been working on this movie since i believe 2012 or maybe he had had it in his head for even longer but i think that's when they hooked up with judd apatow am i pronouncing it correctly judd apatow the who 
Yeah, Judd Apatow. Yes, thank you. I knew it sounded funny coming out of my mouth. Uh, Judd Apatow to produce it. But then there was a lot of work like behind the scenes. So it's not like this project was a response to Donald Trump, like, but I think, or the uh, rise of anti-Muslim hate in this country. It was in the works before that, but I think it wouldn't, I don't think it's wrong to see some of the momentum that this movie got as being a reaction to that, a sort of response to it. Yeah. And the, 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 they announced this project, so the broader public became aware of it in December of 2015. Right. I think you're accurate in all those things that you said. Um, yeah. Um, what else do you have from, from this year? Well, on July 9th, which would have been a week, two weeks after the release, there was reporting that revealed that Donald Trump Jr. had worked with Russian lawyers to disseminate to disseminate illegally obtained damaging information about Hillary Clinton. So there was that. Um, mm-hmm. And then... An oldie but a goodie. An oldie but yeah. a goodie. And then the one that stood out to me, and the reason why I wanted to include this one is because it really overshadowed the entire year for me. And the time where this would have come out and then come on to streaming would have been around about this time period was the October 1st Las Vegas shooting, which is, I am, I live in Las Vegas and I had students and friends and family that were there at the October 1st shooting. And so I don't have a lot to say about it, but there was uh, that shooting, the biggest shooting in American history, the most people killed. And I I still occasionally have just panic attacks about that event. So it sticks out very clearly. Yeah, the I I remember when this happened like I think I maybe heard about it from you, so I knew that you were okay, but my my sister was in Las Vegas at the time and the because the she was on tour and I remember like being very concerned that she was okay and I immediately called her and she was asleep and I woke her up and I was very relieved to hear her voice but this yeah this was not this was horrible and I don't think I'd made that connection because I was so worried about because I had students that I knew were at the concert uh, because they had right, told me yeah, they were yeah. going to the concert so I knew they were there and then uh, my brother's best friend was at the concert he or he was not at the concert he was driving by the concert as the shooting happened so there was like bullets hitting his car and then Jeez. another one of my good friends is an emt here in town and she was working on the strip that night and i just didn't hear back from her for nine hours because she was trying to keep people alive but i had no idea if she was okay and then there was news that emts had been shot at and things like that so um yeah it was a long very terrible night that I didn't sleep for, I don't know, two, three days, something like that. And, uh, very traumatic. So, and, yeah. uh, so that sticks out in my memory quite a lot. Uh, but then the other one that I want to talk about that connects with it, that, that was an event that was not as sad was in on October 10th, the golden Knights had their first game. And then that was tied very closely together. And so the Las Vegas golden Knights, the hockey team, 
they had their first game and it was connected directly to the October 1st events and it was the first moment where people in Las Vegas really kind of had a chance to start to grieve and heal as a community. And then that season, the Golden Knights went on an incredible streak and were just, they were so good that whole season. And that kind of started at this time. Yeah, they ended up making it to the Stanley Cup finals. Yeah. So, yeah, very, uh, because of this, the Golden Knights are like, they're just the team here in Vegas. It's, uh, I I don't know if I know anybody that doesn't have some Golden Knights gear in the entire city, so. That's pretty cool. Yeah. They were also your, because they predated the Aces, so I think they were your first pro sports team, Yes, right? it was the first, the first major league professional sports event in las vegas yeah and now you have nfl and wnba yes and that's it right yes though i'm sure more is coming major league yeah yeah and then i just wanted to add on one event here because you know even the like fun events were terrible that year um and so december 31st the cleveland browns uh ended their season zero and 16 and just scrolling through i got to the bottom of the list and i was like there you go that defines the year right there everything was terrible even the sports were terrible so there you go for cleveland fans. for cleveland fans sure. yes not for everybody but you know that that kind of it, it just really capped off the capped off the year to scroll down and see that part all right so we've talked a lot about the year i think a lot of people probably remember it but hopefully we have jogged your memory a little bit and uh if there are other things particularly if you saw this movie in theaters if you if you are not in the position that we are in where we're watching it for the first time in 2022 give drop us a line and let us know what was on your mind what you remember like what was sticking out in your mind at the time when you saw this movie for sure okay so let's talk a little bit about the how this movie came to be and the stats and everything that we got. Um, Oh, I do. I also do want to mention it didn't. um, So this was a year for the Oscars in 2009 or 2010. The Oscars expanded their best picture field from five films to 10 films. And then a couple years after that, they added I believe they added some sort of like qualifying requirements. So movies had to get a certain number of votes to be able to get nommed for best picture. They weren't going to fill it to the top 10, no matter what, which I think is now gone. I think now, or at least this past year, they were going to nominate 10, no matter what. So there, this year there were only nine movies nominated for best picture. I do kind of wonder like, if they had forced 10 nominations, whether or not this movie would have gotten in. It did, like, I do remember it being pretty popular, but instead it only got one nomination for best original screenplay. Yes. Yes. And ended up losing that to get out, which is fair enough. Yeah. Yep. Hard for, hard for me to be too sad about that, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the screenplay once we get into spoilers and all of that. For sure. So this movie was, as I had said, this movie was produced by Apatow, right? Apatow? Judd Apatow, yes. 
Judd Apatow, Apatow Productions. And they, when Kumail talked about hooking up with them and pitching the movie to Judd, who was a friend of his at the time, he had said, like, they were known for making some of the best comedies around and comedies, like, that sort of reach a larger crowd than just your normal normal summer comedy that sort of comes out and gets forgotten. And going down the list, I think that's totally true. I haven't seen a lot of these movies. The ones that I have seen, like Anchorman and Bridesmaids, are not movies that I've that I'm particularly fond of. They're not movies that I generally find all that funny. So it has caused me not to watch other movies in that vein, but it like it's undeniable that these movies are extremely popular and I think especially with our generation, like I'm in the minority for not liking these movies. So some of the ones that I had pulled was Anchorman, which was their first film in 2004, and then they followed that up with the Steve Carell movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and then also had Superbad, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Pineapple Express, and Bridesmaids, as I had said. Yeah. Uh, my my controversial statement on this is that I don't like any of these films. Um, the only... I think the only Judd Ap- Apatow Productions film that I like is The Big Sick. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't think I liked... I mean, I'm just looking at everything else, and I think I've disliked every single one of these, and even walked out of more than one of them. So, there you go. Ooh, spicy. Yeah, so there's my spicy take on, on Judd Apatow films. So. Have you have you seen all of the all six of those that I just listed? Um, I've not seen Bridesmaids. Or Pineapple oh, Express. That's the, that's one that I did see. I kind of do want to revisit Bridesmaids. When I saw it, I really, really, really disliked it. But now I... It was produced by someone on who had worked on the office who i generally like his work so i wonder if it was like a me thing like i wonder if there's a chance that i like it more if i rewatch it but anyway yeah it's we don't have to talk too much about that yeah. this this movie's about the big sick um what about what about budget and box office here Matt? yeah so this one was a really interesting actually so this film was made for five million dollars which is a very paltry sum in in mm-hmm. this time period where it was being made and I think a big part of that is I don't know what the payment structure would look like for Kamel Nanjiani and Emily Gordon that were screenwriting this, but you know it's it's a very personal film to them. I imagine that they kind of did it for a very low price, or you know I don't know how much they were getting paid. They were putting this together and kind of selling it to Judd Apatow and whatnot, if that makes sense. So yeah, or maybe. What what I hope they did is maybe did it for some sort of future percentage. Yeah, that's what that's what I assume uh, ended up happening. So, uh, five million dollar budget, and then it brought in fifty six million dollars in the box office, which is a really good return on investment. But I, what I found the most interesting about this is that when it came out at Sundance, there was a bidding war that went on with all the different studios to buy the rights to it in order to reduce it, and Amazon ended up buying the film for $12 million. And then once they did that, they put in $20 million in product and advertising. So Amazon spent 
$32 million, probably even more than that if you get into all the little details and things that they are doing. Purchase these, purchasing this film and then getting it out in theaters and doing all of that. So when you look at that perspective from Amazon's cost and trying to get it going and get it, this film out, that suddenly doesn't look like a good return on investment anymore. Uh, 32 into 56 is, I mean, we're talking about large numbers here, but for a movie studio, that's not actually a good return. That's a little bit of a box office failure. But this film was the driving subscriber maker for early Amazon Prime Video. And we have no idea what kind of numbers it drove on subscriptions. But if it drove a bunch of subscriptions, then in that case, it would have been a huge home run financially for Amazon. So it's impossible to tell how well this film actually did financially, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, we sort of just saw a success story for this with Coda, which famously was picked up by Apple for $25 million. And I think when a lot of us saw that sum, it was like, wow, they really believe in this film. Like that is a lot of money just to try and bring to your streaming service. uh, This little, I mean, it was one of my top movies of the year, so I don't mean this as an insult, but it's really a kind of very slight film. It's a very tiny film. It's not something that you'd think would garner that kind of fee but then i think it probably like it i think they view it as a, as a success because it went on to win best picture so i'd imagine that amazon was hoping and i it sounds like there is some jeff bezos wants that oscar yeah. <laughs> and wants the oscar recognition so i think there's some amount where they were hoping that this was going to get a little more oscar nominations than it did i think that's accurate i think he also wants those he wants a bunch of emmys as well but you know that's a different Mm -hmm. (laughs) different topic that's a different podcast and i think like if you're looking for the result of the response to that anti-muslim sentiment that was rising this is probably where you can see that response is in amazon taking a gamble to say we think people are going to want to see this movie that says this. Yeah. And so directly contradicts what's going on in a lot of this, a lot of the country. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about our, uh, our writers and our star of the film here. Yeah. So this film was written by Kamel Nanjiani and his spouse, Emily Gordon. They wrote it together and it is, Based on their own experiences, their own romance, and how they met each other and all of those things. Though they took a lot of artistic liberties in creating this film and they changed up. It's essentially a work of fiction that's based very strongly on real experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how they got into it. And, you know, they, Kamel was a comedian doing stand-up and Emily was a therapist and then they you know kind of had this idea for this uh, for writing a film based on these experiences about three years after the events happened and then another couple of years passed after that and they got in touch with Judd Apatow and then went through a long process of script writing was most of that production time up until they made the film something like three years of 
just sending drafts back and forth and reworking the stuff. And then they continued working on the script while the film while the filming was going on. So it's not like it was done uh, as production started and all the all the people involved talked about how, you know, even even the performers, the actors were involved in the script making. So they would come mm. and talk to them and uh, about how to shift around and rewrite different things. So kind of an interesting experience there with the production. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me a ton. Like the script seems very lived in. So that that makes a lot of sense to me that it would have been a very collaborative experience. And I don't know if you went and sort of the Kumail's Wikipedia page does a pretty interesting job of sort of um, lining out his career before this movie happens. And once this movie happens, then he kind of explodes. I think this was his first starring role in every, in anything. But before that, it's sort of like he was doing this Dungeons and Dragons podcast and he was doing this other podcast that he had done with. Um, oh, shoot. I forget who it was. I can't remember. But are you talking about the X-Files files? Was that what it well, was? Well, he did the X-Files files as one of his podcasts. And he also did the Indoor Kids with his spouse, with Emily. Yes, the Indoor Kids was... Yeah. No, not with his spouse, with Allie Baker. Um, was... Yes, that is... Well, no, Baker left the show and then he did it with his spouse afterwards. Mm, yeah. Got it. Yeah. The Normally this is something we would cut, but go ahead and leave it in because we... <laughs> Uh, yeah, we talked too much to get back into it. Um, but yeah, and then, so it's just like, it reads like someone trying to figure out his New York life and <laughs> figure out how to have a career from there. And then eventually it's just like, yeah, I guess hopefully the movie that I write for myself will be a big hit. And it was. Yeah. Uh, he had been on the HBO show Silicon Valley Mm-hmm. But it's it's you know he just had a lot of hustle and a lot of a lot of pots in different places trying to kind of get things going. So it's interesting. And then who else did you want to talk about here? So the the person for me that as I watched it just like really sold the show on me. I loved Kamel's performance and I think it's great. And we'll talk more a little uh, about Kamel and Emily and all that stuff later on. But the actress zoe that plays the part of emily gardner in the film which is based on emily gordon kameo nanjiani's wife who at the time they were just meeting fascinating and i thought her performance was excellent i don't know how you felt about her performance but i just i just adored it and i just fell in love with her yeah no i also adored her i adored both of them in this movie i mean i think the movie kind of hinges on the two of them but yeah really really the top the top four in this movie the two of them and then uh holly hunter and ray romano yeah like just excellent i thought yes i agree and so i went and listened to some interviews with zoe kazan learned about a lot more about her and just fascinating person uh so she is the granddaughter of elia kazan not sure if you are familiar with him has a bit of a theater background Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so films like Gentleman's Agreement, Streetcar Named Desire, On the Rot, Waterfront, and East of Eden, and then theater plays such as All My Sons, Death of a Salesman, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Just you know, <laughs> some just just a little, a few little ones, a few little ones there. 
also the granddaughter of Molly Kazan. Kazan. Um, Elia and Molly were married, and uh, Molly Kazan was also a playwright and wrote several plays. Those probably aren't as well known, but I'll just list some here. The Egghead, Rosemary, and The Alligator. That's uh, People probably aren't as familiar with those, but the two of them kind of made this power couple early on in Hollywood and and on Broadway, both of those. And then their kids, so or their son, Nicholas Kazan, was a screenwriter famous for films like Matilda, Bicentennial Man, and Reversal of Fortune, among many others. And then he was married to Robin Swicord, who wrote the, the Winona Ryder version of Little Women, also Matilda, Practical Mag- Magic, Memoirs of Geisha, and The Curious Case of Bud- Benjamin Button, just as a few things that they wrote. And so she is the daughter of, yeah. of that couple and then the granddaughter of the this other Hollywood power couple. And she comes from a dynasty in Hollywood, for sure. Yeah, Robin wrote the 94 Little Women, but she was producer on the 2019 one as Makes well. Makes sense, yeah. So yeah. very talented, incredible writer. Uh, I, I love a lot of her films to be to be perfectly honest. And one of the things that she talks about in her interviews is that her parents hated that she became an actress. Oh, funny. Yeah. They wanted her to be a screenwriter, which she also does do some, some screenwriting, but they just did not want her to become an actress at all because in her words of what her parents said to her was that every actress they knew was miserable. Um, So they didn't want her to go down into that path and, do that but then she started taking acting classes in secret behind their back <laughs> so uh she would she would sneak out and sign up for acting classes and then lie to them and say she was going you know she's doing other things so like oh going to go to a party do some drugs actually it's acting classes you know so i don't know it's really fascinating and she's a very well regarded actress has been acting consistently for a long time here since 2003 but she hasn't had a lot of like big explosive roles. She had she auditioned for Gossip Girl and was close to getting that part, but ended up getting turned down because she didn't quite fit the part. And she's talked about that as being just one of the biggest blessings in her life because if she would have gotten that big role that would have paid a lot of money, she would have taken it instantly. And then she felt like it would have had a detriment, detrimental impact on her life going forward to have done that even though her career probably would have blossomed so a lot of interesting stuff she's done she's also married to paul dano who is the riddler from the batman so and an interesting career that she has and if you want to listen to more about her she did this great this great interview for a show called off camera and we can link that into the show notes it's she it's a great interview that she has and she talks about the way the industry t- treats women and things like that and uh just i don't know she's a really fascinating person yeah it was such a familiar performance by her that i was shocked when i looked up her filmography afterwards and i was like yeah i guess i didn't i haven't seen her in anything although i do really want to see ballad of buster scruggs yeah for sure and she's one of the most acclaimed parts of Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So it's it's on my list of things to watch as well. One of the other things I thought was fascinating is there's a lot of interviews with her and Emily, who is Kamel Nanjiani's wife. And she's playing the part that's based on her. 
and them talking together. And apparently when the film was going, she was real nervous about, you know, playing a person that had written their own life and then playing alongside that person's spouse in like romantic scenes and all of that stuff. But then as soon as they met each other and spent like five minutes together, they just, you know, got along so famously and just connected so easily and felt so naturally like their personalities were very similar that apparently it was a very easy performance for her. And she, you know, talks about her time very fondly of working on this film. Yeah. So I don't, Additionally, we do have Holly Hunter and Ray Romano in this film. I don't think we need to say a ton about them, but this movie came out in 2017. They were Holly Hunter and Ray Romano when when they were cast. So, <laughs> and they were great. Yeah, they're they're great in the film. Yep. Uh, they do an excellent job. Uh, they kind of rewrote the parts uh, once they got Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. They rewrote those parts to fit them. But, you know, they're, they're iconic. Mm-hmm. They're, they're great. Yeah. And then I wanted to give a quick shout out to, this is probably not someone that you recognize, but Jeff Blumenkrantz played one of the, one of the doctors. Yeah. It's a pretty small role. And Jeff Blumenkrantz, I saw him in Bright Star on Broadway. He's done some other acting stuff, but he's also a musical theater composer he composes for musical theater and unfortunately none of his stuff has really like taken off or gotten off the ground which i think is kind of a shame because the stuff that i've heard of his is really really gorgeous but the song that most people would know if they know it and i shouldn't say most people but because most people probably don't know it is audra mcdonald recorded one of his songs i believe on her first album and it's the song i won't mind which i really really love so i'll throw that in the show notes so people can listen to it but it was kind of fun to me when he showed up on screen and i was like oh he's from our world even <laughs> though you know he's yeah, yeah. He, he runs in our world i, I hope i hope that when people listen to this podcast that you know, this is the breakthrough the uh, that Jeff needs in in the Broadway writing career. That it really launches you know the international superstardom that he deserves. I I think we have a strong listenership of Broadway producers, so it seems likely. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, I I don't have a ton to say for advice or insight for first time viewers. Do you have anything that you wanna wanna add? The only thing that I thought was really important was that this is based you know, some somewhat on a true story, a a true story that has taken some artistic liberties. But this is essentially how Kamel Nanjiani and his spouse, Emily Gordon, met and fell in love is this story. And I think that adds to the experience when you know that. I don't know. It's for me, I didn't know that until I finished the film. And then I found that out and it just kind of like blew my mind. But I think it would enhance someone's viewing. Cool. All right. So let's take a break and we'll see you on the other side. All right.
So, Maddie, how did you like this movie? I loved it. So, uh, what happened to me when I watched it is on mm-hmm. Saturday night, it was like midnight, and I, I was having a hard time falling asleep. So, I was like, you know what I'm going to do is I got to get this film finished so that we can record. This is Saturday a week ago for us, but uh, so I turned on the film and I was like, I'm going to watch the first like 15, 20 minutes to get a feel for it. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'll finish it off later on. And then I accidentally watched the whole thing uh, and was up until like four in the morning. <laughs> so, because not only like watching Oops. it, but also like thinking about it afterwards. Cause then I started like looking things up and I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've never seen this before. And, and then finding out that it was, you know, I had a suspicion since it was using his name. I was like, is this based on a true story? All of those kinds of things. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I loved it. I adored this film so much. Yeah, I was pretty much in the same boat. So we normally I watch the movies during the weekend before we record. But the weekend last weekend for us was the Oscars. And we had three Oscar nominated films that we were trying to fit in before the Oscars. So I didn't end up watching it then. And then Mara and I watched it on Wednesday night, and we were supposed to record on Thursday. And I liked the film so much, like, I didn't, I was too in it. I didn't take enough notes (laughs) to record the podcast. And so I I messaged you on Thursday morning. I was like, I think we got to (laughs) push... gotta push the recording back because I didn't like I was too in it I didn't take enough notes <laughs> I can't record the show tonight yeah <laughs> it's fun yeah so and and then I did have that weird experience that I talked about at the beginning of the show where I was like I especially that last dinner scene where he like I maybe I've seen someone in auditions like do that scene as a monologue because when I was the one where he writes out the cue cards for his family I was just like I know this dialogue like I have heard this before but I know I've never seen the film and it's at the end of the film I don't think it would have been in any of the trailers so I just don't the only other thing I could think of is if he was like on Colbert or something like that, or if I think he he wasn't nominated for an Oscar, but maybe he was nominated for something else that I watched, and then they showed like that clip of that scene. I don't know. Yeah. It really was a very strange experience that happened like multiple times. Yeah, it's a I I so. totally get it. I'm I'm pretty sure that I did see the joke, the nine eleven joke. I think I saw that on a talk show somewhere. That it showed that one. Um, the nine eleven joke is is famous. When I was listening to the podcast that I was listening to, where he he was interviewed, the interviewer mentioned it as like uh, the infamous joke from the film or the the famous joke from the right. film. So I I think they got a lot of mileage out of it. I think we probably just missed it because we didn't necessarily know what it was referencing at the time. Right. And then I also knew the cheese, the cheese monologue about the, the drug cheese. Cause I had seen that oh, uh, someone yeah. had posted <laughs> that monologue, not from the film, but just the monologue when he, and so I went back and watched uh, some of his old comedy videos 
and I realized that several of those videos I had seen ages and ages ago because people had just posted them on social media. And the cheese one was one of those. Mm. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, I think his like stand-up comedy is kind of intentionally not very good in this film. Mm. But, yeah. His, his stand-up comedy in real life is actually quite good. But it's at a time period where he's kind of figuring out all that stuff. So I think they kind of intentionally had him perform it not quite as well on stage in order to evoke that sense of this artist that was trying to figure things out. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to say anything about reaction here? Or should we move into the scenes? We can move into the scenes. I just love it. I don't know. I think everybody should watch this one for sure. I know that it people are sometimes, you know, on the fence about about watching things. This one, just give it a give it a go. It's really good. I think most people are gonna like it. Yeah, it's a it's a really easy watch and like I'm trying to remember I don't know that we've covered any other movies on the show that made me as emotional as this one. Like I definitely teared up at the at the at the end when she was at the at his comedy show which <laughs> like I should have seen coming because I knew it was based on a true story and I knew that <laughs> something was going to happen but I just wasn't like I was too in the movie I wasn't thinking fast enough to be there so I got a little weepy there and then when he walked in and she was awake I like definitely got those yeah for sure uh those chills yeah which uh, you and I are both fairly emotional movie watchers, so I wouldn't say that's uncommon for me in movies in general, but it hasn't been super common when watching movies for the podcast, either because they're movies we've already covered or, like, my mind is just having to be in a little bit more academic of a space to, to let myself be too emotional. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%, and this one definitely got me. Not only that, it knocked out Pretty Woman out of my list of top 10 favorite romantic comedies. So Pretty Woman got knocked down to number 11. And Get out of here, Pretty Woman. Uh, I know. I was telling I was telling Mare, and she's like kind of mad at me. I was like, yeah, it, it doesn't reach as high as Crazy Rich Asians for me, but I think it's my number two romantic comedy. And she was like, <laughs> wanting to file for divorce. <laughs> but I don't have like the same love for a lot of the classics uh, yeah i i'm not sure which ones are at the top of your list but like you've got mail which i like fine but i don't it's not as high as this movie is for me yeah well i've got things like the princess bride and groundhog day and things like that so right groundhog day was the other one that i was like well maybe groundhog day would would be up there but i i need to rewatch groundhog day because when i saw that i my last experience with it was watching the musical and i was like oh there's some really weird like consent stuff in this story that i need to rewatch the movie and remind myself how how that all gets handled yeah i mean it's um, it's that stuff's in the film too um but in any case, this isn't about Groundhog Day. Uh, I do want to no, add... this is not about Groundhog This Day. film, The Big Sick, there's another classic rom-com that I love called... Uh, it's got Sandra Bullock, and it's called While You Were Sleeping, which is about um, a girl who meets this guy like at a train station, and then he get, he falls and gets knocked into a coma. 
and then he's in a coma for like six months and she just was like fantasizing about him beforehand mm. uh and so she is like yeah i'm his wife or i'm his girlfriend something like that his fiance and then she gets invited to all the stuff and then all the family comes and meets him and she basically falls in love with all the family and so classic one it's great everybody should go watch while you're sleeping but it had those kind of vibes to it, and then you're like, "But this really happened," uh, and so I don't know. It was uh, it's neat with that with the story in that way. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk about our first scene here, which um, was mine. We have sort of a a sandwich here, and the I wanted to talk about their meet cute for this movie, which I think is a kind. Everything's a little unique about this film because, at least in terms of like my normal conception of a rom-com, because she spends the second act of the film in a coma. So the second act is really between him and her family and him and his own family. So there has to be a lot of work done in that first act of the movie to really make you feel like their relationship is real and make you care about it and make you feel that connection for them and i like i really loved their meet cute i don't know how you felt about it but um, tay didn't like it because she's walking away i don't know if you can hear the text <laughs> but um the so the i wrote down sort of the main parts of their meet cute so he asks during his stand-up if there's anyone there from Pakistan and she woos and they sort of make eye contact and there's it's obvious there's an immediate connection and then he ends up going over and um after his set you know sort of does his trick where he's like asks her name and then shows her her name written in Urdu and then it it sort of progresses from there inverts the well, it inverts the trope because then he says, now that we have these formalities out of the way, I have to ask you, or I think he asks her name and he says, now that we have these formalities out of the way, and you think he's going to like ask her out on a date, but instead he starts being, he starts sort of like ribbing her a little bit like, hey, you, um, you heckled me and the, it immediately sets the scene where, she, or sets the relationship where she's going to be able to go toe to toe with him because she's like, "Oh, was I heckling you?" And he says, "Yeah," and she was like, "But it's positive." And he was like, "Well, even if it's positive, it's still heckling." And then she says, "So if I yelled, you're really good in bed, that would be a heckle." And he's like, "It would be an accurate heckle." <laughs> and I just think that set the tone so well for them that, like. One of the things Kumail does so well in this film is, and I, I think it's probably just natural to him, but it's one of the things that makes it sing for me, is he plays the straight the straight man of his comedy so, so, so well. He does. And without her foil of that, without seeing how it lands on her, that none of that would work. All of it would come off as very mean or very cold or very inhuman which you see in that nine in that nine eleven joke where 
uh, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano's characters don't get the joke. And I think it's the only time in the movie where he breaks and has to break and be like, that's a joke. Like, I, I'm joking. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is the real life dima- dynamic of Kamel Nanjiani and his and his wife, Emily Gordon. Uh, when you see them on camera mm-hmm. together, they have this exact same dynamic. Uh, he'll that doesn't he'll crack me, yeah. these kind of like just straight man jokes and she laughs she gets and laughs at all of his jokes and then like adds on to them and can play this verbal wit with him and it's very clear that this part of their relationship is accurate and they as they told the story all of this is accurate except for the part where he writes her name in urdu and she's like "Mm, does that work for you sometimes because she totally fell for it in real life so yeah (laughs) she's like yeah i totally it got me hook line and singer did they say if I assume the Uber driving driver thing was made up, was manufactured? I don't know. I was trying to figure that out, but I couldn't they figure that say. out. Yeah. My my guess is it is. It's a it's a cute bit. But the other thing that I wanted to mention, even though it's not technically part of the meet meet cute, there's he has a scene with his family in between and then it fast forwards to their second date when they weren't supposed to see each other again. Yeah. And I said on our Hitch episode and then also on our Crazy Rich Asians episode, like one of the things that makes me most nervous in rom-coms is playing the, is this cute or is this stalkerish behavior? And I loved the way this movie got around that because they agreed they weren't going to see each other. And it's clear based on their banter, like he's like, I'm never going to call. And she's like, okay, you're never going to call. And it's clear they both don't want that but I was already a little afraid that there was going to be an awkward scene that we were going to jump forward and there was going to be an awkward scene but instead I think the way they solved it by having him like she doesn't even get out of his sight before he calls her I (laughs) thought that was like solved it in a very cute way and you immediately saw her reaction where she was like oh this is cute and you know they had oh it's really cold out here oh it is isn't it (laughs) yeah well it's not cold in here i i thought that was really nice and immediately put me at ease for my uh internal cute or stalker yes i had a feeling i felt the same thing as i was watching it and i thought specifically of you as we were watching it i was like i think that i think that zach will appreciate the way they're kind of building the relationship uh and the dynamics in this one one of the other things that i really enjoyed about their relationship and meeting up was how precarious it felt because it's a real because it's real when you're watching a romantic comedy so often you're seeing the story structure and the inevitability of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one, because, you know, you know this is going to be a film, you know they're going to get together, but the actual events leading up to it, you can see how it could have easily gone either way. And you don't feel the the inevitability, you feel the precariousness of it, even though you know that eventually something's going to happen because it's a story. The actions that they're taking, they feel like risks that are real-life risks of putting yourself out there yeah that was all that i wanted to say about this first scene did you have anything else you wanted to add or should we move on to that's all i've to your that's scene? all i've got for that but i love the time that it spends building up their relationship and it's it just feels real so that's all i wanted to add on that stuff 
All right, the next one's yours, so what what do you got? So there's this moment where they've kind of been together for a little while, and so right before this scene, they are shopping together, and her ankle is kind of sore, and it feels like that's kind of um, giving us, uh, what's the word for this? It's kind of like lampshading or uh, foreshadowing, that's the word, foreshadowing that there's going to be some health issues coming up, and she also just seems a little bit more depressed at the time period she's kind of turning over her cereal in the cereal bowl and just kind of staring at it and Camille is just having this conversation and not keyed in to her emotional state and she goes over and opens the cigar box that he has in his room and in the cigar box he has been keeping these photos of all the Pakistani women that his mom has been trying to set him up with and when this happens she all of a sudden confronts him about this and the the untruths that he has been keeping hidden about his relationship and his family comes out and they have this breakup scene which is also realistic and justified and it's just a a really kind of heartbreaking scene and you have this moment where she's really torn up because of all these red flags that she's seen and she realizes that he's been lying to her and lying to his parents about the relationship. In fact, not even telling his parents about her. And then there's this, this dynamic that goes back and forth that I found really interesting and important to me was that he says this line where he talks about, talks about marriage. And he says in Pakistan, in my culture, arranged marriage is just called marriage and marriage is called love marriage and it's you're not allowed to do it and he says my cousin married an irishman he got kicked out of the family and he says he can't lose his family as she finds out that he hasn't told his mom about her and you see the dynamics of of these cultural differences but the way that they're so difficult for them to resolve because in my mind there's so much justification for both sides of this conflict and it's what made it really work for me so yeah, I completely agree with you. I think the reason this works is I I think it's like pretty obvious that Kumail has done something wrong by not telling her the truth. Yeah. Um, like you got to just be honest with people, but it does give a very like families break people sometimes and when you have that much pressure, it's just like it it makes it very understandable why someone would mess up in that way. And so it makes that conflict feel very real. And because you understand why Kumail did what he did, but you also understand why Emily is so upset and why, like, I feel like there is a pitfall in a lot of rom-coms where that screaming match feel like, it feels like we're hitting point b of this story where we need to drive them apart and so we we come up with a reason but this one makes a lot of sense and there was also a moment in this scene that i wanted to shout out because one of the things that i think i i'm so glad this got nominated for screenplay because i think a lot of the writing is just really so 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 good and a lot of it is very unobvious and I think a really good example in this film is when she you you see the progression of her figuring out what is going on where she's like 
who are she asks him who are these women and he tells her that they're for arranged marriages and then she she at like she asks all of the questions that make a lot of sense she's like oh so these are women in pakistan who want to marry you and he's like no they're here oh well have you met them and then he says well yes but only with my mom and only once and she's like well why does your mom why is your mom doing this what what does your mom think about us and then this is this is where i just like absolutely fell head over heels for the movie because it goes to kamal and he just says nothing like it just has a shot of his face and i think a lesser screenplay would have given him a response and would have moved the story just a little quicker there because this is kind of long for a rom-com like it does come in at 159 i think with credits so probably like 153 or 154 because there's a lot of ground to cover and you could have just shaved a little bit of time here but instead she's the one who has to make the realization and he's just like standing there broken everything that he didn't want to come out has now come out and i think it's a really it's really nice acting but also really nice writing i agree the screenplay is and not only that it's this film is so clever with its word usage that it would have been really easy for them to use some more clever word usage there as an answer but instead they let silence be the answer so i think that's really good and zoe kazan and her both kumail nanjiani and zoe kazan their performances are so nuanced and the the choices that they make are in this scene and the delivery of this scene are also just phenomenal they're master classes and so the dynamics of these things and i gotta be honest the cinematography also great the way that it's shot and kind of divides the apartment up and puts them in two different rooms as this is happening Mm -hmm. and the movement that they have between the in this cramped space between the different parts of the apartment and so the mise and scene of the way that this is put together and how the camera follows them around all of it contributes to make this moment so powerful and work so well yeah and i didn't mention but the at the end of their first date there is that really nice shot of her looking at him in the rear view mirror of the um of the car of the yeah. car yeah the it it's easy to miss how slickly this film is shot but there, there's a lot of really nice touches like that, but it never feels artsy. Like I think it all, it all just fits what's going on really well. I agree. I agree. That's all I had for that. Uh, scene. The only thing I wanted to add on this one is this thing that he says at the end, where he says, "I can't lose my family," because mm-hmm. it's just heartbreaking and honest. And the, I think one of the things that I loved about this scene is that you have this argument between them and both of them are also coming from this insecure place where the argument is on top of the, these dynamics that are underneath that are affecting them personally. And so I enjoyed those things. I thought it was a brilliantly done scene. Um, and we can move on to the next scene, which ties in with this. It's also yours. Yeah, so in, in this scene you have... 
you know, we didn't pick a scene from the, the coma. She spends the rest of the movie in a coma until this next scene. And then she gets out of it, and she goes back with her parents, and there's the whole dynamic that happens between Kamal Nanjiani and her parents, and the, you have, like, a separate entire romantic comedy stuck in there with him falling in love with her parents. But in any case, you get to this scene where she's out of the hospital, and she's having this coming home party, and he had talked to her at the hospital, and she's like, all I remember is us breaking up, and you need to leave, and I can't really talk to you. And then he goes at the breakup party, or not the breakup party, the welcome home party, and goes in to talk to her. And uh, she's polite and goes to have a conversation with him. And he brings out this bag of all the things that he has from from the time period where she was in the coma, the visitors' passes and the uh, the tickets from when his parent, her parents went to go see his show, and the ashes of the. <laughs> Of the, I love the line. Uh, these are the ashes of these yeah. the Pakistani women, um, uh, not the women, the photos of the women. And he shows them to her and asks her to take him back. Uh, and her response is, she says, "I'm." She's so delicate in the acting choice of this is brilliant. But she says, "I'm really glad that you had that experience." But for me, I was asleep that whole time. And I just don't think we should see each other. And uh, it's heartbreaking, but also makes sense. And I love the acceptance that he has where he just, you know, he was making his last plea in a way that was, I don't feel like was violating her boundaries. And then she respects the respects him and the the journey that he's went on but also kind of gently nudges him that this was his journey that he went on that's not a journey she went on and then they break apart once again and i thought it was a brilliant scene so i'll pass it back over to you yeah well and they also i agree with you this did not like it did feel very respectful of her and i think like a lesser movie would have done a couple different pitfalls here one is, like i was definitely thinking while i was watching the movie like she is not going on this internal journey that you're going on and i knew it was based on a true story so i was like i don't really know how they're gonna reconcile these things like it doesn't feel real that she's just gonna wake up and be like oh you're friends with my parents cool Yahtzee <laughs> I guess it's I guess it's great now and so they didn't do that which I was very pleased about and I think they were aware when making it they didn't they wanted this scene to come off as respectful they didn't want to fall into that stalker category that I'm so concerned about and they even added a line where I can't remember who he said, but I think he said, your mom said I should come. Yeah. He, he, he said, he, he said, he has a line where he says that he got affirmation from someone else close to her. Maybe it was her friend who had called him from the hospital, called to tell him to come to the hospital, but you get that external confirmation of, I'm not just here to be here. Like someone else said I should come which helped that moment a lot for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, and then there's this mo- line that she says at the end that really just got me and made me tear up was when she says, I can't be the reason you don't have a family. Yeah. And it is what I loved about this is it reveals that there is this undercurrent of 
of understanding where she, after having thought about this, has understood the issue that he has and is validating the conflict with his family. And I think she's actually kind of making a brave choice and saying, like, if we're in a relationship, I'll always feel like I caused you to not have your family and I can't be that person and that this is underneath of it all the the real conflict down kind of underneath of all those things yeah and I mean I said it before but like it's one of the reasons I like this film so much is it's like parents can mess people up and they can mess up your life and it's a lot of control to have control over a whole human being and you see it like almost derail these two people's lives who really care for each other and it's not you know Camille makes his own mistakes along the way but it's not fully on his parents but it's just oh it's rough it's rough to watch them go through it for sure for sure that's all I've got to say about this scene I don't know if you have other things to say about it no I don't have anything else we I have some other stuff around here but we can talk about it in clean up good so let's talk about the last scene which is this it's essentially just a monologue it's a monologue except for one interjection from his brother and I this this is probably my favorite scene in the movie even though I think it's the scene that does like we've talked about the weight that all of the other scenes have to make the rest of the movie work but it's this scene where he goes and basically tells his family like you're you're my family like you don't get to vote me out of the family because that's not what the word means and he does it in a very self-assured way i think it's supposed to show the growth and the acceptance that he has had through the movie but it uses this really nice framing of he walks in and he says i i'm in the family i get a vote for whether i leave the family and it has to be unanimous because that's how the rules work and they hold the vote and he's the only one who raises his hand and he's like okay so i guess i don't i don't leave the family but then he predicted that they were not going to talk to him and so he has a bunch of little flashcards lined up which he then reads through like various lines for them in from his flashcards like pass the salt or a line for his mom like oh always with the funny business <laughs> always with and the comedy or always yeah. with the comedy yes that's the, that's what it is my favorite one where he's like how did you become so much handsomer than your brother Naveed and he's like uh, you know <laughs> yeah great and I just thought this was, like, this was such great acting from Kumail. He had to shoulder this entire scene. I also felt like it was maybe a nod at Love Actually with the with the placard. I thought the same thing, yeah. And I, I didn't find any places if he uh, talked about that or talked about whether that was intentional, but I that's a very famous and often parodied scene and I thought it was kind of a nice moment but the other thing that I liked about this is like I don't know if I've talked about it on the show before but I'm raised Jewish I was bar mitzvahed I consider myself Jewish I also consider myself atheist 
And I thought it was really nice to have, I don't know if there are Muslim people who consider them like identify as both Muslim and atheist. I don't know if that duality is something that they feel comfortable with, but I thought it was really nice to see the equivalent of that, regardless of what ident- what identities they hold. Like, clearly, being Muslim and having a Muslim background is a strong part of who he is, but it's also like, I am, like, I don't, he tells them, I don't pray when I go down there. I don't believe. I just play video games and set a timer. And I thought that w- it was really nice to see that representation and really nice to see something that felt so real and so accurate to me, even if almost none of what he has to go through and goes through in this movie is anything that I've really experienced. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's these kind of family dynamics and the culture that you are inheriting from so many different places and the way that you either match up with it or don't match up with it and the way that it affects your life and the way that you respond to those things, especially as it affects your family relationships is a really difficult thing. And it's very specific in this film, the, the things that he's going through, but the specificity of it also makes it so human and general to, to so many people, because I think so many people can identify with that that dynamic there yeah that's yeah that's all i have for this scene do you have anything else you want to say or should we move into cleanup we can move into cleanup yeah let's do that okay um so the first thing i had is one of the things that i love about this is i love i talked about the subvert how it subverted sort of what I was expecting for the meat cute but then at the it also does it at the end of the movie where generally you expect the guy to be the one who does the chasing down but in this case it's her in both cases she's the one who comes to him she's the one who runs to the airport not the airport in this one but I mean it's the same concept no but to but to New York City and I, it's part of why I wasn't able to see the end coming, even though if I'd been in a little more thinking place, I probably would have been, because I just wasn't expecting her to be in the audience. And I, I loved that subversion. Yeah, it was it was really good. And I just, uh, this is one of the parts where I was like, it, real life is so precarious, because there's so many places where their relationship could easily break apart and it would be natural and it would make sense and nobody would have to hold uh, anything against each other in the in the last like 25 minutes of the movie she goes to see his yeah. not see his one man show but drops by there to chat with him they have a great talk and then he says he's going to new york and she says you know i'm glad for you and uh, she doesn't beg him to stay or anything it's just like okay well i guess i'm too late and leaves uh, but then when she shows back up into the audience and reenacts their meat cute from before uh it's it's great yeah. it, it was really good it was really really yeah. nice what what do you have here uh, for well Kino? in that same scene where they're in the meat cute camille nanjiani's actual wife emily gordon is there next to zoe kazan in that comedy club oh. so she's she makes an appearance uh in the film at that point oh that's yeah. nice so the other thing that i so one of the things here there's uh one of the 
they've got a few comedians that he kind of uh, pals around with and all of those things. And one of them is Bo Burnham. And I wouldn't have much to say about Bo Burnham generally, except that I watched uh, Bo Burnham's Inside last year. And Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't love Bo Burnham's character in this film, but, you know, he shows up and that guy drove me nuts throughout the entire film. I don't know if you know which one it is, but it's the, it's the like more self-assured comedian, the one that's more confident and that is getting all the deals and all of that stuff. Yeah. The one at the beginning who's like, it's so hard being successful. Yes. Like it's so hard not being. Yeah. So Ugh, I, I wish I had the line better. I'm definitely mangling what was a very funny line. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a lot of great jokes that he does. He, when he does his stand up routine in the movie, they had prepared lines ahead of time and then had the extras and they'd rehearsed all of this stuff. And then he got on and did a completely different comedy set, which is what is in the movie. And so the reactions mm. are the actual reactions from the crowd because they weren't expecting uh, what he ended up saying. So, but I also oh, didn't love funny. the care. I, I thought the performance was fine, but I didn't love the character that they had for him. I was just like, uh, the character annoyed me. So I, I thought they did a great job with the cringy other comics. Yeah. I, I, th- was appropriately amused and cringed by all yes, of them. Yes, for sure. For sure. Uh, and you got that sense of comedians that are trying to work through their material. And there's seeds of good stuff there, but they haven't quite gotten it yet. Uh, what other yeah. things did you have for cleanup? So I wanted to ask you, the only place I felt like this movie really misstepped or well, I, where I felt like I maybe was feeling some stuff that got left on the editing floor that I had to play some catch up on is the moment where it goes into her watching his stand up act, the one that he supposedly bombed. And I I was like pretty confused on whether or not we had watched that one or not, because we watched the one where he showed up and just doesn't perform a comedy act. But I think it was supposed to be, those were two different ones. And like, and we just didn't see the audition, but then we see her learn in the audition that he told his parents about her. And all of that, I felt a little unmoored and sort of like tracking where the threads of the story were supposed to be going but i wanted to ask you i didn't know if that was just me or whether you had the same experience at that point um i'm kind of laughing over here because that's the next thing that i have written on my notepad yeah so um yeah i don't know i i had kind of the same issue um and i asked so i was i spent some time trying to figure this out and i didn't figure out so i don't have an answer for you because i'm confused at the same thing what I kind of worked around to is I think that so that the audition was that there was a guy that was supposed to be there watching him perform. And then he talks about uh, this experience beforehand because of the call he got. So I'm thinking that maybe they're supposed to be the same experience, but I couldn't exactly tell. But that's kind of the way that I thought of it in my head. But then the other thing that I did is I... So she goes and watches the video on YouTube. So I tried to find to see if there was a video of that on YouTube, um, like the oh. actual experience. And I mm-hmm. searched for a few hours, like two hours, and I couldn't find anything. So I was a bit disappointed in that. But I did watch, you know, several other Kamel Nanjiani routines while I was like old, old routines of him before he really knew what he was doing. So 
that was interesting, but I don't know. I don't really have an answer for you on that one. I tried to find answers, but couldn't find them. Boo. Yeah. So. Do, do you want to move to the next one on your uh, list? That's all I've got on again? my list. So. Okay, I have two more things. I guess I'll do the more serious one first. So I did have... I've done a little bit of back and forth with myself on how I feel about this. I think there's a... There's a dichotomy between the way Emily's parents are presented for the majority of the movie and the way they're presented for in that scene where he asks him what his stance on 9-11 is. And yeah, I've I've sort of been wrestling in my head in my head. Like there's a part of me that feels like it's kind of just that line where he that 9-11 joke is kind of just a little cheap joke that they have in there because it's very funny and they left it in even though it doesn't really fit the character that Ray Romano ends up being, uh, which I think fits with the idea that they changed the characters to fit the two of them. But then there's another part of me that is sort of able to explain it away because it's like, well, even... uh, like even people who are going to stand up for someone in a comedy club or are going to have internal internalized Islamophobia or internalized racism and that they can contain multitudes. So I've sort of been... Yeah, I leaned towards the second part of that myself because I totally get where you're coming from because I felt the same thing, but I've also just seen so many times where... Um, where white people that are, I don't know, for lack of a better term, they're well-meaning or they kind of have, they, they think of themselves as being anti-racist or being egalitarian, still have so much Mm -hmm. Islamophobia that's, that's internal that they sometimes aren't aware of. And those kinds of things a lot of times come out, especially in stressful situations. So I I really liked that they did that. And it, it, it was a journey for me to think through those things to come to that conclusion. But I, I like that they showed that to show that kind of dynamic from people that are even well-intentioned. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where I land eventually as well. And if you hadn't put in the show notes that they rewrote the two characters for them, then I probably would have forgotten about it yeah. by now well and but. that's actually one of the things they rewrote in the that they added in for the characters so oh yeah. they added that in so okay so that helps so that's more, added in and then the the affair that the dad has is also added in so the hmm. they added that because of they were trying to you know create more of like a, a movie dynamic and those kinds of things so yeah. makes sense yeah and then the last thing i have and this is I'm sorry to bury this at the end of the show because I think this is really the most important thing I have to say about this movie, which is they're in Chicago and they order a pizza and Kumail has lived in Chicago and that is not a Chicago-style pizza. That is what looks like a very sad New York-style pizza. And just like, what's going on here? I don't know. I can't tell you. 
So I didn't notice it, but that is a tragedy. Yeah. It is. So I did have, now that it, we talked about it, one other thing to add on. It's also a small thing. This film released on Kamel and Emily's 10th wedding anniversary. So The wide release or the Sundance I don't release? Know. <laughs> Oh. So cool. One of those. So if you want to send anniversary greetings to them, I suggest sending it both on January twentieth and, and in in June, July, whenever it released. Just send it both times. I think it was June twenty sixth. Something maybe? like that, yeah. Or just send it every day of the year. Just say happy anniversary, just any day. Yeah. So anyway. Hey, even a stopped clock, right? That's right. Okay, so that will do it for this week. As always, we want to hear what you have to say. We are nearing the end of our third season, so we've been doing the new format for this. Uh, I should have been saying it at the beginning of each episode, but I kind of fell off of that. But please do let us know how it worked for you, and hopefully it got you to watch a few movies that you wouldn't have otherwise watched, or maybe appreciated movies that you we're going to watch and you you were able to get a little bit more out of those we have been getting some really nice notes from people saying that it has worked for them if you are on the other side where maybe it hasn't worked quite as well for you or if you just have some ways that you think it could work a little better for you uh that's actually more important for us to hear from you on just so that we can sort of refine everything and keep trying to make the show as good as it can be and you know, we do the show for us, but we also do the show for whoever's listening. And if it's just for us, then that's less people than hopefully whoever whoever listens. So if you do want to reach out to us, you can send us long form thoughts at podcast stream it, uh, just those three words at gmail.com. Or you can shoot me a note on Twitter and I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and we would love to hear from you. Next week, as I said, it's going to be our season three finale. It's going to be our last film on Amazon Prime. And we are going to choose to accept the mission of watching Mission Impossible, the first Mission Impossible from 1996. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, pretty stoked about that one. Closing question. I, why don't I go first? I think mine is kind of short and short and sweet. So Kamel, uh, while he's trying to get his comedy career off the ground, is moonlighting as an Uber driver to make make a little extra money, make ends meet on on his end. Do you have a job that you had to do that was not your dream job, that was your your side gig? To, to bring in money, money just so you could make ends meet? Yeah. Ooh. Um, so many things. I I don't know. That's a difficult question for me because I have done a lot of different jobs in my time. Um, I think the one that I would connect to with this is I did... I worked for a survey company doing like political surveys, calling and interviewing people. Uh And this is when I was in college, just trying to make ends meet. And you got paid by like the number of surveys that you got done. And it was, I mean, it felt like a sweatshop when you went in there and it was a horrible, horrible experience. Uh, And one of the worst jobs that I've ever had. Um, 
So that's that's the one that Oof. comes to mind. It was miserable. Yeah. It was awful. And it felt like this because it felt very giggish. Because you'd like walk in and you'd have to like get clocked in and th- you didn't know if you were even going to have a seat in the office and you're like changing cubicles. And it's just like they bring people in until they filled up all the cubicles, all the phones. And so when they ran out of phones, they just would turn you away. Um, and it was a miserable experience. Oof. Yeah, I, I've been a little, a little luckier than you. I've only really, like, I was lucky enough to really work pretty steadily as a pianist music director for most of my life. But we did have one period of time where we, the theater that we were working at, we had to leave early because of... Uh, let's say philosophical disagreements with the <laughs> executive artistic director. And so I ended up just picking up a job where I could. Uh, I wasn't expecting to be in New York City. And I worked as a bookseller for Barnes and Noble over the holiday season. And I mean, there was plenty about that gig, about that job that was not great. But honestly, like, I kind of loved it. Like, I got to check people out and see what books they were reading and talk with them about the books that they were reading. And then the holiday season ended and I stopped doing the job. So I guess I don't have a good answer for this. <laughs> sounds great though. I yeah. I like it. That's a, that sounds like, you know, that's a great one. I don't know. There's a little bit of romanticism to yeah. it. Uh, even though it's still a job, you're still working, but there's, yeah, yeah, it's good. What do you got for us? For so similar question? to, you know, the Uber driver question, I thought you were going to go to the same place for just a moment. But my, mine's, mine's simple. Are you a talking or not talking person in the Uber? Oh, so funny. In the Uber, I am a not talking person. Yeah. But, but that, that is despite, and this happens almost every time I'm out, like with someone else, especially if it's someone I'm not, normally out with any other job that I interact with I normally am a talking person like when I check out at a what anywhere like the supermarket or anything like that I always ask the cashier or whoever like how their day is and sometimes they aren't talkative and they're just like it's good thanks and then I don't talk with them but sometimes I get someone who doesn't care about how they appear at their job and they're like oh i'm exhausted from x y or z and i'm happy to have a conversation with them just to make their day go by faster Agreed. yeah hopefully that's what what happens but in an uber i'm just so nervous that i'm gonna get trapped in a conversation that i don't want to be in because you can't do anything you're stuck in that car until the ride ends and uh yeah yeah i I totally get like i am not a talker when i get in but I'm always like I, I prefer drivers that are talkers, but only when they're cool. Mm. And you know right. when they're not, I'm just like, oh, it's so bad when it's bad uh, that it's just difficult. But I I I enjoy talking with people that I've never met before so much when I'm in that situation. And so when I have a good talking conversation, it's just really is a great experience for me and I love it. But the bad experiences of I've, I've had have been just so, so bad. Like uh, I had a guy that just was like almost berating me for like 15 minutes for listening to Tupac. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that kind I mean, of experience. How dare yeah. you? And I was like, 
bro, I'm paying you for this ride. Can you can you chill a little bit? So I don't know. It was weird. I have never I've never had the experience where I get into like a political conversation with someone that I don't want to get into. One of the nice things is like I am interested in sports and a lot of times that will being able to talk sports, especially if you get predominantly male drivers, which is what seems to happen. I don't know if it's algorithm or just there are more male drivers for Uber that can help you get out of a lot, like find safe conversation grounds for a lot of situations. But I did have one really uncomfortable Uber drive. This was, I think it was actually Lyft. I take Lyft over Uber the majority of the time. Um, We're just giving Uber all this free advertising on our podcast. Um, But it was coming back from Brooklyn, and this was at like 1230 or 1 in the morning. And it was like, it, it was a ride where I debated several times asking her to stop the car and let me out. because. And the most concerning thing that she said was, have you ever been driving a car... And just wondering what would happen if you went as fast as you could into the barrier right in front of oh, you. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> like, no? I haven't I wondered was, that. And I was like, no, and I don't think we want to find out here. Yeah, please don't. Uh, please I, don't. Yeah, I was also getting some stories about her ex or the guy that she was seeing it was it was a very concerning drive and it was not one that i told mare about until maybe like six months later because i i always get so nervous that she's just gonna worry about it my my the unfortunate thing for my conversations is that you know a lot of times when i'm uh getting a lift or usually lift for me as well but um when i'm catching a ride is I'm coming from the school while my car is having trouble. And so they're like, mm. oh, so you're a teacher. And that leads down into political conversations so often. Yeah. And people want to tell you their thoughts on education. And they are oh, not informed. And it's miserable so often when they do. So, you know, that's frustrating. You should come up with um, fake professions that you have researched well yeah. enough. Or you could just do really boring ones. Yeah. I'm an accountant, and then uh, no one asks you questions when you're an accountant, right? So, uh, well, as long as it's not the months January, February, and March or April. That's true. Yeah. In any case, there you go. Anyway, that yeah, that was a lot for simple questions. So we will talk to you next week for Mission Impossible. Bye. Bye.